Putin expected Ukraine to roll over in days when he launched the full-scale war in February 2022. But this was a tragic misreading of the Ukrainian people and their relationship with their leaders and system of government, which they were prepared to fight for and lay down their lives for. Instead of a small victorious war, Putin has become entangled in a quagmire that has now claimed more Russian lives than 10 years of war in Afghanistan. That war helped to accelerate the collapse of the Soviet Union. So what awaits Russia now in a much less stable situation under sanctions and potential defeat? Welcome to Silicon Curtain Podcast. Please like and subscribe if you like the content we produce. Our material is now available on popular podcasting platforms as well, such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Konstantin von Egert, MBE, is a freelance journalist, commentator, and communications consultant. He is a well-known as an analyst and writer on Russian and international affairs, and is a commentator at Deutsche Welle. Konstantin has fulfilled many roles in a long and distinguished career, including anchor at TV Rain and Moscow bureau editor at the BBC Russian service. Konstantin was educated at Moscow University Institute of Asian and African Studies in Arabic language and studied history at Lomonosov Moscow State University. Well, thank you so much, uh, Konstantin, for agreeing to appear on the channel. And really, I wanted to start off um, in an unusual way, I think, because I haven't asked any of my other speakers about their background and their family background. But I think yours is especially interesting and, of course, pertinent to the sort of terror that we see unfolding in Russia today. Oh, that's right. Thanks for having me on, on the podcast or the videocast. Um, yes, I mean, it is, uh, on the one hand, it's a pretty standard story for an empire. Uh, I have a mixed um, Russian, Polish, German, Swedish, Italian background. The Italian person was somewhere, appeared in the Family Chronicles around about 450 years ago. Uh, he was a mercenary soldier in the army of the Polish king in the 16th century. Um, and um, I was born in Moscow in 1964, and I'm that rare animal from a very, very rare zoo. I'm a fourth generation Moscovite, uh, which really kind of entitles me to uh, probably being put in a cage and shown to people um, as some kind of uh, eighth wonder of the world. Um, and um, yes, it is. Um, it gives me a very, I think, or rather it produces, and it, it, it gives me very special feelings about uh, not only the place where I was born, but the whole Central Europe and the Baltics. Because, for example, on the one hand, I had my grandfather, who was quite a famous uh, Soviet, Russian and Soviet, um, theater and cinema actor and director carted off to the Gulag and miraculously surviving there because the camp commandant wanted to have his own theater. So he kind of pulled him out of cutting wood uh, and uh, made him director of the theater. Uh, on the other hand, I had my uh, grandmother's brothers executed by NKVD in different circumstances, not to go too deep into these details. Um, and uh, um, my mother and my grandmother spent the whole war in Moscow under first German bombs, then kind of, uh, digging uh, digging trenches in 1941, then working, and then their 
flat was completely destroyed by German bombs and they had to go from a communal flat to a communal flat. And um, um, frankly, I was born in a communal flat. I think very few people in the UK can imagine what it what it means to live in a in a flat. It's rare, flat. but I, I yeah. lived for a year in a communal flat. In, so in, in Russia, in Russia. Russia. Yes. yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, That's I quite, quite unusual. Okay, yeah. but it's uh, <laughs> five families in five rooms sharing one bathroom. Yeah. Ours had no hot water, no mm -hmm. communal kitchen, and um, and the the walls were made out of like cardboard. So whenever Aunt Masha had yet another lover. Mm -hmm. uh, in an adjacent room, I knew everything about their sex life, and all um, the neighbors too. Yes, everyone. Yes, 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 yes absolutely. So, um, I think that um, um, that gives me, to some extent, um, a very um, specific and um, very intimate, if you wish, um, view of a recent and not so recent Russian history, uh, because I'm part of the Russian community, I'm part of, uh, descendant rather, of the German and Polish nobility. Um, and, um, you know, it's interesting, some of my ancestors were, essentially, I think most of them were officers. So they were traitors to the court. Some, some, some crossed over from the Tsarist army, Imperial army into the Red mm -hmm. Army. Uh, but on the other hand, I had people that, um, in my background, that, uh, um, revolted against the Tsarist rule in Poland and were, one was actually beheaded during the partition of Poland. And very recently I had uh, uh, a relative, distant Polish relative, but a relative who died in the uh, crash of the Polish presidential plane in Smolensk in 2010, uh, which I think is still under investigated. I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I think there are too many strange coincidences there not to be looked at. Uh, close up. Uh, but I was lucky enough in the Soviet days in spots of being, um, well, coming from, an, well, I would say, underprivileged or non-privileged family to get myself a good place in the university to study Arabic language and Middle East history. Um, I spent three years doing national service in the that time Soviet army that was during peak perestroika days. And um, then after discharge, Basically, very soon after that, the Soviet Union collapsed, and I worked as a journalist for most of my life, mm -hmm. uh, maybe except for like year plus two years that um, I was in the corporate sector, working for ExxonMobil and, and a freelance consultant mm -hmm. uh, to different FT for one hundred companies. So, um, but my life mostly was tied to to, to Russia, of course. And uh, um, in two thousand fourteen, I left it. Not as a political refugee, but it was a voluntary immigration to Lithuania, because I do think, and that's probably a good starting point for our story and our conversation. Mm. I think that in 2014, when I and my wife and my children voluntarily sold everything in Russia and moved to Vilnius, to Lithuania, um, it was a decision which was not understood by many people uh, in my entourage. Relatives and, and friends and colleagues said, "Well, I mean, why do you do it? Yeah, of course, Putin is nasty, and of course, the Crimea was something that was extraordinary. But you know, it's probably one off. It's going to continue." And I said, "No, I don't. I think once I've seen this hysteria, and I don't think the West media, not not for lack of trying, but really, you had should you should have been inside Russian society to witness what happened 
in Russia in 2014. That was like, I don't know, like watching cabaret again with hysteria, with this uh, jingoistic, not patriotic, jingoistic uh, uh, sort of um, wave sweeping all across Russia and all over the kind of Russian minds. And I understood that at that time, two of my children, one, one was not even in school, another one was in school and I thought, well, uh, I don't want them to come back. And um, for me to tell them, well, you know, what things they tell you at the civics lessons and history lessons and whatever are not really true, mm. as my mother did to me. So in the Soviet days, so uh, we left and alas, I have to say today when I walk out to the street, actually I returned from doing some stuff in Vilnius and, you know, nowadays my old Moscow Facebook passes in front of my windows, metaphorically speaking. Mm. So I think that we had quite a few turning points in the last 20 plus years of Putin's rule, but I think none is as important as 2014, the annexation, specifically 18th of March, 2014, when the annexation was announced. And uh, that I think set Russia on a very, very um, dangerous and perilous course that it, it didn't yet run it, I think, completely. And there seems to be another interesting breakpoint, doesn't there, in the last couple of months? Because up until this point, as you say, people could say, well, Putin, uh, we don't necessarily like him, or this is a hybrid information autocracy, but we can live our lives, we can run our businesses, we can go to restaurants, we could do this, that and the other. And the regime, to an extent, doesn't touch us. But then conscription began. And I think a sort of unwritten social contract between the regime and the people was broken. I mean, what was your sense uh, when when you saw those images of what amounts to basically state-sponsored abduction from the streets of, uh, to a lesser extent, <laughs> Moscow, but provincial towns especially. Well, Jonathan, you know, uh, you touched upon a very interesting point. Um, and moreover, I'll tell you that, um, like today, you'll find lots of people in Russia who tell you that, you know, we always knew that, for example, Dmitry Medvedev will only stay for one term and Putin will retire. Um, I wasn't like I, I wasn't sure about it. I thought that the smell of the Kremlin corridors, the smell of the Russian power authority, uh, this sort of uh, um, eternal call of Russian authoritarianism will work wonders on Dmitry Medvedev's brain. But it didn't. I mean, he turned to be quite a resilient nobody. Uh, but um, I think that uh, with regard to what happened after the 24th of February, before we go into mobilization, I want to say that I never expected Putin to go into this stage two of the war, into this full-scale invasion. Um, as a former officer, I can tell you that I was certain that he has his recce, his reconnaissance, his intelligence briefings. And as someone who tried to go to Ukraine every year, if possible, two, three years, uh, ever since quite a long time, actually, from before the Crimea, I was absolutely certain that, uh, I mean, unless you have a Hitler-like invasion with you know scores of panzer armies stream, streaming across the border, uh, you have no chance of success. And that he started it was an absolute surprise to me. I know, I thought that he was just 
it was just a case of blackmailing uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainian political class, trying to squeeze concessions out of them, trying to show Biden that he continues to run this sort of post-Soviet space no matter what, but that he's going to go for that. And in such a reckless fashion, that was a complete surprise to me. Mm. And I think that um, mobility, but, but it, ever since the 24th of April, until the 21st of September, i.e. the day uh, mobilization was announced, for the majority of Russians, this, um, this war um, was this evening war on prime news, sitting on my sofa, having a beer with my wife Nina, something like that. I think after the 21st, it changed because mobilization touched, well, maybe two, uh, the official figures, 300,000. Maybe it's more, maybe it's slightly less. It's not a lot for a country of 140 million, but it is significant. Nothing like that happens since the war in Afghanistan. And I think that it's not the end. Putin will run out of this, this I'm sorry to say that, I don't want to be mean, of this cannon fodder. And he'll go back and he'll scrape, you know, the spot for more. And this means that eventually, well, not tomorrow, but this war will start coming to more and more Russian homes. And this will cease to be war on TV, not tomorrow, not in a month, but it will eventually happen with economic difficulties also piling up. As you know, sanctions don't work overnight. Um, sometimes it takes a year, two years. Uh, but frankly, I think that um, eventually the reality of this war will hit um, those Russians who are now immune to anything but TV. It's interesting also, I think, that Putin announced on uh, the, uh, not Putin, Shoigu, his uh, defense minister, announced uh, these days that this mobilization is over. And you know what? In the big cities, it was pretty much unnoticed because Putin knows that he shouldn't plug Moscow and St. Petersburg, uh, maybe Katerinburg, Novosibirsk, the big cities, the, the, the real metropolises, into this. Because these are people that are politically aware, these are people who know how to use YouTube, these are people that, that are rich enough sometimes to give a bribe, or to, 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 because you, you always give a bribe to avoid military, military service in, in Russia, uh, or in the Soviet Union before, actually. So uh, I think that, and it's important, because I think that it needs to finally dawn on provincial Russia what this war means to them. Mm -hmm. And I think eventually it will happen. And provincial, but also I think there's an element there of ethnic Russia, because you have a lot of the ethnic populations essentially that have been there since the Russian Empire expanded in the sort of 16th century. They Maybe a lot of their identity and language and, and independence has been erased over the centuries, but you do see a, a big bulk of the cannon fodder coming from provincial uh, ethnicities, the non-Russian. True, but at the same time, I don't want... I think that we have a lot of these conversations here in Central Europe about, uh, you know, the oppressive nature of the uh, ethnically oppressive nature of the current Russian regime. Well, look, I traveled be 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 before this this twenty fourth of the fateful date, twenty fourth of February. I traveled in Russia because I said I was a voluntary emigre. Um, uh, my work with 
DW, Deutsche Welle, the German BBC, um, is very much connected to working with the Russian audiences. And um, so I traveled quite a lot. And I did over my lifetime, traveled quite a lot in, in Russia, including provincial Russia. And I think that there's a misperception about this kind of um, the sharpness of ethnic problems. I would say that there are more problems between, or used to be at least, uh, between, let us say, the guest workers, the immigrants from Central Asia, from Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, uh, then between, let's say, the Russians and the Tatars in, in Russia. Uh, there is probably one exception, and that is North Caucasus, Chechnya and Gushetia, Dagestan, uh, 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 which were actually conquered on the current Russian territory. This is the territory that was conquered by the Tsars uh, uh, it was the most recently conquered, I would say, um, in, in the 1850s and 60s. However, um, first of all, there are too many contradictions between these ethnicities, between themselves. So in a sense, some of them, and I'm not calling for kind of an, an imperial power, but some of them actually want someone to be like an arbiter from above. That's one. Secondly, after the Chechnya war, Putin is pouring enormous money into, well, those regions that can rebel. I mean, it doesn't mean that this money spreads across the population. I mean, poor Ingush or poor Chechens are as poor as you know, poor people in Voronezh or in Siberia. But um, generally, the elites are kept very, very well fed by the, uh, by the Russians, by, by, by the Kremlin. Chechnya exists in a de facto confederal union with Russia. But that means that they will be the last to say we actually want to leave. And also, let me remind you, uh, Russia, and, and it's, I th frankly, I think you can believe these polls more or less in uh, this, this kind of uh, polling data from official and independent Russian pollsters. 80% of the population say they are Russian. It doesn't mean they are ethnically. Right? You don't measure blood. But... <laughs> Uh, they recognize themselves as Russian. They, they identify as Russian. Mm. This is essentially mono-ethnic states in many ways. And the fact that they plum, kind of scrape, they, they, they import into this um, meat grinder so many people from, let's say, places like Buryatia uh, or Tiva in Siberia, which are populated by a kind of... Um, people that are related, let's say, to the Mongols and Chinese to some extent. Um, it's rather a testimony not of Putin deciding to suddenly eliminate people from Piwa. They are, in terms of numbers, they are very insignificant for, for, for elections or they're not particularly rebellious. Um, it's because these are extremely poor regions with very high levels of alcoholism, unemployment. And that's why people are easily uh, attracted uh, uh, into this kind of easy money by into, into earning easy money uh, by this kind of calls to, to 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 join to join the army, and that's why they die disproportionately, of course. Uh, but I think that I wouldn't say it's a specific policy of kind of Russification, if you wish. Um, it's. I think more, it has more to do with social economic conditions than with ethnicities. Uh, but yes, that also means, and that's a product of this war, that 
disproportionate uh, rate of uh, uh, of of uh, death of of uh, uh, disappearance uh, among those small peoples means there will be fewer of them. That means there will be percentage-wise more Russians. So Russia becomes even more mono-ethnic, if you wish, at least as I said, in terms of self-identification. And to an extent, it's a. Uh... I think you saying the word it's a testament to makes it sound far more positive than it is. But it's a testament to the success of Soviet brainwashing over many decades, isn't it? That it's actually erased these distinct identities um, from history. Yes, yes. Uh, those people who could have been or were actually leaders of, uh, you know, the uh, ethnic and national revival in some of those areas were either eliminated by the Bolsheviks, by the communists, or some of them were incorporated into the Soviet system. Those who were susceptible to essential bribery were made this sort of people's artists of the Tatar Soviets, autonomous Soviet Republic or whatever. Um, by the way, that meant, of course, that some of them really had wonderful careers. Some of them were not completely devoid of talent. But um, you could be a Tatar or a Chechen only within certain parameters. And uh, I think that uh, what it meant is that, to a large extent, this policy of Russification uh, was successful in many areas of the uh, former Soviet Union and uh, especially the current uh, territory uh, of the Russian Federation. It's interesting because, uh, Jonathan, you touched upon one of the debates that happened, especially in the 1990s, when the war in Chechnya uh, was launched by, uh, by the Kremlin in 1994. And that is, um, do we really consider that the breakup of the Soviet Union, which const was constituted of 15 republics, um, could stop with those 15 republics becoming independent states. Because inside those republics, there were other republics which, called, which were called autonomous republics. And for example, the Chechens said, yes, you know, we want to be independent. If the Soviet Union is going, why should we stick? We don't want to stick with Russia. And I think that this question was resolved, quote unquote, by Boris Yeltsin, by who launched this brutal war. And uh, then resolved finally by Putin, who in fact understood that he can't conquer church. And now all this money that pours into Ramzan Kadyrov's pocket is effe effectively a Russian contribution. But you can't say it in Russia. You can't say it. Putin was, Putin was already defeated once. Now he's being defeated by Ukrainians, but he was defeated by the Chechens. And everyone pretends it doesn't have It's like people in Moscow uh, pretending that there is no war. You know, old men have this exhibition opening tomorrow. Would you come? We'll drink, of course, Abkhaz wine instead of the French wine or something like that. And we'll have Serbian cheese instead of French cheese. But we'll pretend that life goes on. This type of thing happening, even among intellectuals who know everything about it. Goes on. Um, I think that to some extent, this is still the issue of Chechnya. And uh, to finish on that, or at least to finish answering your question, I, I know I have very long answers. But, <laughs> no, I think that once Putin disappears from the sea, which he will, and once and if Russia becomes a relatively, at least a relatively free state, 
at least with some degree of freedom and uh, accountability during elections. I'm absolutely certain that the moment a new Russian Duma is elected, which will cons consist, by the way, not only of wonderful Democrats, Lech Valencia or Nelson Mandela style, there'll be some nasty people there too if you have free elections. And someone will stand up, some new MP will stand up and say, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the chamber, um, you know, I come from whatever, Omsk. And um, I want to ask you why the Chechen Republic is getting 95% of its budget directly as a federal transfer from the treasury. My good electorate from a village of uh, New River, 300 kilometers from Omsk, they also want this kind of life. They don't want to pay any taxes, or rather they may pay taxes if 85% or 95% of the budget is formed by Moscow. And I'm sure it will be a debate. There will be a debate about is a Russian Federation a real federation? And frankly speaking, it's very strange, but I think that in the 1990s, people that defended the Chechens were um, the Russian Democrats who were uh, saying, well, they shouldn't kill people, which is absolutely normal because they are, rather, you shouldn't try to conquer them, should set them free, should determine their own life and so forth. And you know, the Russian uber patriots were saying, and you remember the 90s, they were saying, oh no, not a single square inch of Russian soil uh, will ever be expended like it was in 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. Now the roles are completely reversed because the Russian nationalists, if there's ever a free, a possibility of free debate in Russia, will be saying, we should say goodbye to Chechnya, let them go. Let's fence them off. We don't need these people. And it will be the human rights defenders, you know, NGOs, you know, the Russian liberals, you call them whatever name you want to call them, will be saying, no, you, can, you can't push people out of the country if they don't want to go. So historical, Russia is the land of historical paradox. I mean, it's an interesting concept, though. I mean, we're talking here about... Uh changes to society, changes in the structure of first the Soviet Union and then the Russian Federation, almost based on partly accidents, um, also based to an extent on envy, because I remember hearing a lot of people uh, in the 90s complaining about the ex-Soviet states. You know, why are they so well off? Why did they get all the best stuff when it was our empire, uh, etc.? And this is, you, you've given an echo of that very same feeling. And to an extent, I know this isn't very geopolitically sophisticated, but the invasion of Ukraine and the widespread support for it can't just, I think, be explained by propaganda alone. There's also that green-eyed monster, Zavist, or envy, plays a significant part. Yes, envy and inferiority complexes, of course. Mm. And uh, I do agree. Um, I think that explaining it away by propaganda uh, just simplifies it to an extent that you'll just very soon be forced to answer questions to which there are no answers because you don't see the whole of the picture. Of course, it is envy. And I think with regard to Ukrainians, it is a very specific type of envy and hatred. Um, because Ukrainians are seen really as a nation pretty much similar to the Russians. 
and the Russians live, not only under Putin, under the Soviet Union, under the Tsars. Remember, it's only 161 years since serfdom was abolished in Russia. And the practice of just buying and selling people and killing them if you want, was uh, terminated. So Russians who look at Ukraine and see that Ukraine, they have elections. They regularly rebel against their authorities, where the Russians at best petition them. They feel this inferiority. I think it's very deep and said, why are they not like us? Why don't they put up with oppression and uh, with uh, the authorities lording it over them? Corruption. Why are the corruption? And why, why we put up with that and these people decide not to? Something must be wrong. They should be like us. Instead of saying we should follow their example, they say, wow, if they continue like that, it's going to be a constant reminder to me who I am. So it's hatred of the other because the other dared to do something very different. And I have to say that it was completely underappreciated both in Russia and in the West the way Ukraine developed after 1991. I remember having lunch in London with a very good friend of mine, uh, James Sher. Uh, he's a very famous British researcher and consultant to the British government. Uh, he was one of the first Western specialists on Ukraine in the 90s. And I remember we had this lunch and uh, I... It was 2000, 2001, something like that. And I voiced this very popular, at that time it was a very popular opinion that, well, you know, Ukraine is like a mafia state. It's completely controlled by the oligarchs. It's it's just a smaller sized version of Russia in terms of its political system. I understood that the ethnicity is completely different. But political system is getting the same. It's just fewer people, uh, less rich oligarchs and no nuclear weapons. That's it. Otherwise the system is getting the same. And I remember James Sher telling me, Huh, Kostya, you're wrong. Why? Well, you see, the main event that makes Ukraine different from um, Russia is that in 1994, the first president of Ukraine and its last Communist Party chief, Leonid Makarovich Kravchuk, who died this year, lost an election to another Soviet-era bureaucrat by the name of Leonid Kuchma. And what he did? He peacefully transferred power, gave up his presidential office, and became just a regular MP in the Verkhovna uh, Rada, the Ukrainian parliament. He said, this was a turning point for Ukraine because it experienced, okay, it's a bit dirty, yes, there is corruption, there are oligarchs, but it experienced democracy. And you know, literally, since 1991, Ukraine had one, two, three, four, five, six presidents. Russia had only, in fact, two, if we don't consider Medvedev to be a serious. Okay, three. And you could so, even argue, I mean, Yeltsin didn't peacefully transfer power in effect, not in the democratic way that you've just described. Peacefully, but I think undemocratic. Yeah. yeah. Or at least he put in place a, a, a mafia warlord, essentially, who could then protect his interests. Yes. So that's not a traditional transfer of power. And yes, I think, and by the way, what, Jonathan, you're right. Not mm -hmm. even peacefully, to some extent. And then no big hater of Boris Yeltsin. He was who he was and he did what he could. Uh, but I think that you're right. If you look at the fact that 
the second war in Chechnya was launched as this kind of revenge war. Exactly before or during the time Putin became the prime minister. Putin became the war prime minister, 9th of August, 1999. Uh, I think you're right. It wasn't even peaceful for that matter. Mm. Because all this thing was designed to uh, help Putin become Yeltsin's successor. So yes, Russia did not experience a peaceful transfer of power because, again, Medvedev was boxed in and he could do nothing. Actually, if he, if he rebelled, if he said, I don't care what happens to the president, but I'm against it, ah, he would have been you know, a local hero, but he isn't. He's now just in the And wrong. probably fallen Trump, out of a window Trump, shortly Trump afterwards. Trump. So what did he say? Uh, probably fallen out of a window shortly afterwards, or... Yes, you know. <laughs> yes, yes. Or drinking the same tea that Mr. Litvinenko drank in London in 2006. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to ask as well, because there's an interesting experience of the 90s, which has a kind of horrific echo for me, uh, watching uh, conscription unfold. But I wanted to really link it to your experience in... in um, uh, being in in uh, you know the Russian armed forces, and that was in the first Chechen war. I remember seeing people being press ganged into the army when they closed the exits uh, of the underground stations in St. Petersburg, and then they check everyone's papers uh, on the escalators. There was no way of escape. No new trains would come in, and it was terrifying. You know, seeing mostly poor young men you know they as you say they wouldn't uh, take people from wealthier families who had the right documentation but seeing those sort of echoes several years later i mean could you talk about your experience of of the army and and why what seems to be unfolding the sort of defeats the poor equipment the poor discipline the fairly toxic hierarchy i mean do you see echoes of the soviet uh, experience in the army to the current russian army yes i was lucky to serve as an officer after university because uh, as, as you know jonathan some russian universities and uh, higher higher education colleges uh, uh they had this military training because the soviet union was completely militarized society so you had military training in school so we all knew how to handle a kalashnikov by you know, by the age of 17, because he was supposed to be conscripted to the army at the age of 18. But for many, many people, there were exceptions, including those who um, who got a place at, you know, certain institutions of higher learning, including the Moscow University, where, where, where I studied. And uh, uh, at the same time, you had military training during your college days, and you graduated as an officer. So if you went to the, say, Moscow Aviation Institute, you became a, uh, you became a, like a, technician or aviation engineer, Air Force engineer. Um, I studied Arabic language, so I became a military interpreter, translator. And I was sent to a Soviet military mission uh, in, in Yemen, where I spent three years uh, doing my national service and progressing from second lieutenant to first lieutenant. Uh, but that's normal in the army, that you just receive, get this uh, extra star automatically. Um, and I know people who say, well, you you're with the GRU or whatever. No, I wasn't, but it doesn't matter. I'm not going to prove it here. But what I would say is that I served among the officers, of course, among soldiers there. It was officers that were servicing and teaching the Yemenis how to handle Soviet already by that time obsolete weapons. And things I heard from all these people that were coming from different parts of the former Soviet Union, uh, what I saw in our advisor group, how relations were 
mm, constructed, how subordination worked. Um, that gave me a very, very, that gave me ample outlook on the state of the Soviet army. And I would say what I think survives. It's not the issue of weaponry, although weaponry is important because um, really classy weaponry is only uh, developed, I think, generally by private interest. Or in, say, the Chinese case, you have to have major investments, enormous investments, um, complemented by uh, basically um, a situation which working for these organizations, like it was in the Soviet Union, working, being a nuclear physicist was great because you were part of the elite that was guaranteed a certain lifestyle. So I think the same happens probably to Chinese engineers that work on their whatever, silkworm uh, missiles. But generally, I think you don't get advanced weaponry in a society, in a, in a country that, that is backward. And Soviet technology was backward already. That's number one. Number two, in terms of the way the army functioned, the way relations, even between offices, um, were mm, structured. It was very clear that um, you were essentially, I, I, I'll go probably too far, but if you're of junior rank, you were like a slave to probably, if not the next rank, then to the rank slightly above. The next after. Mm. I don't think that's going too far. I've heard a lot of anecdotal uh, stories describe it exactly in that yes. way. And, for example, I was in a very specific position in which I could talk back to, say, the colonel who headed my advisory group because I was a link between these people and the Yemeni army and the uh, you know Yemeni procurement people and so on and so forth that would repair our jeeps. I was indispensable. And also I was not inside the system. Everyone knew I'm going to leave the moment my last day, I will, I'm going to demob uh, the moment my last day arrives. And they knew that I'm independent in this respect. So I could talk back to the colonel, I could do whatever. I don't say I wasn't disciplined or I was rude, but I, was, I didn't feel any dependence. I didn't feel any fear for the rest of them. It was built on fear because you know what? If, even if you're lucky to go and serve abroad, if you don't uh, kind of work towards, to put it mildly, your major or your kind of whoever is your, uh, uh, your direct uh, superior, after you finish your uh, mission, he'll write a recommendation to general staff. And depending on how he describes you, he'll, you'll either go to, let us say, that's the Soviet Union, okay, let you go to Kiev, which was very prestigious. Or you go to some hellhole, again, 200 kilometers from Orenburg. And this is something that was an extremely important thing because there was no way to appeal it. There was no way to, um, to, to in any way uh, counter it unless you heard what, as you know, in Russian is called blood, i.e. Uh, an acquaintance of an acquaintance who works on the general staff and who say, oh, no, 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 stop this lesson. 
Colonel Ivanov, or rather Captain Sidorov, wouldn't go to a village 200 kilometers from Orenburg. He'll go, okay, probably not here, but he'll go to Sverdlovsk, which is now in Katerinburg. Another thing, bribery. Uh, everyone was supposed to bring not just a packet of Yemeni coffee to the general staff, video recorders, loads of stuff. Moreover, and I heard a lot of these stories really in, in the Soviet army that was very spread, uh, where the junior officer would be ordered, oh yeah, drive my wife to the shop or drive my um, mother-in-law to the train station. And that was supposed to be an order, although it's just officially request. Help build my dacha. I mean, in the 90s, that was yes, one where... Yeah. And yes, yeah. that's what I want to touch upon. Yes. Corruption. Stories of corruption were absolutely everywhere. In any, you would sit down to drink a vodka, and, and people say, "Oh yeah, I remember. We were we were sent whatever three tons of sheet metal to uh, to to build hangars for our for our planes or whatever for our um, power generators." And you know, suddenly all of our officers' dachas were covered with this sheet metal, and the generators remained in the. Uh, in the open space under the influence of elements. So I think that all this remained. And also an important thing, we didn't have any NCOs there, we couldn't. But essentially the Russian army, uh, the Soviet army, and to a extent the Russian army still, is built on essentially the officer taking full control and full responsibility for minuti of the life of his whatever, platoon, company, whatever. Um, he doesn't have time to think about how his company will operate, for example, in such and such circumstances. He has to be very much informed and he has to take action on a soldier's you know, torn boot or something. Again, I'm slightly exaggerating, but the amount of detail the amount of paperwork is staggering. It shifted a little bit since in the wake of the invasion of Georgia, Putin decided to go for an old professional army. And there is slightly, slightly more sergeants uh, that uh, can do stuff the, the officers were supposed to do even until 2000 something. But it's still not the army of sergeants. To be a sergeant is not prestigious in any way. And I think that it's still an army where officers are overloaded. It's still an army where officers are not very well educated, frankly speaking. And it's very important. It's still an army in which the officers are not taught to think independently. By the way, the same with the Russian foreign ministry, where you don't argue with your head of political section or with your consul or with your ambassador. It's this lack of, you know, to and froing. It's this lack of give and take that characterizes it. You know, I, I covered the bit, the Balkans wars. It's a vertical, and, as I've heard it described. Look, I look at the British forces. I think the British forces are the best forces in the world. Not because of high tech, although there's enough high tech, frankly speaking. It's because of relationship between men and relationship between officers and men. On the one hand, you know that these people are going to die not only for king and country, but probably for their colonel. On the other hand, 
And it's very clear, the authority is very clear. But on the other hand, it's never an authority of a you know, landlord who orders peasantry around. And this is such a stark, no, stark difference. With the Soviet, and to a large extent, the Russian army. And I think, Jonathan, that everything you needed to know about it. I didn't have to go into this long exposés of uh, my Lawrence of Arabia light <laughs> adventures in Yemen. But look at what happened in Bucha, Irpin, and other Ukrainian uh, towns and villages that were there, that were basically erased. You look at these rapes, plunder, loot, killings. It couldn't happen if the officers did not say this is allowed to happen. You have manuals, like the Russian army still has you know, service manuals. They have to act according to the manual. You're not supposed to break into civilians' houses. You're not supposed to rape girls or, or men or whoever, dogs. Things they did is crazy. It's because they knew. They were either ordered to do it or Comrade Captain told them, oh yeah, don't worry about it. It's, it's a right. strategy. It's a it's a feature, not a bug. And it is. It's a feature. Mm -hmm. It could you, you can't do it unless in this pyramid. The Russian army is very much pyramid. Any, any army is a pyramid, but Russian army is a pyramid with very sharp edges. You can't do it unless actually the commander in chief says it's fine. Mm -hmm. Go on. You wouldn't find written orders probably that will specifically stay. Go and rape every single woman in that or this village or town no or go and lift the proverbial washing machines from the ukraine's homes and send them to the proverbial Orenburg. no but you know russian army as a lot of russian society works on understanding and of course if this was it this was happening in such massive way it is it is the best illustration on what the russian army is Mm, absolutely and and those who um are not observed to go along with that system um of course they themselves will come under suspicion uh if if their behavior in some way didn't support what clearly were unwritten orders certainly it's like corruption mm. people go into a ministry in russia and they probably even think okay yeah i'll work there for a few years and then i'll move on then i'll probably get to kind of create a private business and I'm not going to steal anything. Mm. But once you work, get into the system, the corruption is one of the conditions of its existence because, because Russia is essentially run, and they said it many times on you know, the BBC and wherever. Russia is run very simply. It's run by two tools. In the left hand, it's corruption. In the right hand, Putin brandishes fear. Mm -hmm. It's not very original. You can go and read about it in Russian classics in the 19th century. But it is very effective. And in a completely demoralized and atomized society that Russia is today, to wield this, these, these tools is easier than it is in a more coherent, even in some way in a Soviet society, which, and I'm no big fan of communists, <laughs> full disclosure, but in the Soviet societies, society, the war, there were perceived to be certain common values. Enforced, but they were there. If you did something, you could lose your party membership, for example. Not anymore. 
and even rules between adversaries. So there were unwritten rules between the US and the USSR. Yeah. You would compete yeah. in certain areas, yes. not yes. others. Yes, that's why it was very recently I attended a conference in Vilnius, actually, where someone said, a younger Russian said, alas, uh, said, uh, well, um, this is the new Cold War leadership like the Soviet leadership was in the Cold War. I said, oh, there's a huge difference between uh, the Soviet leadership of, well, say, the my age, Brezhnev and Dropov and people like that, and Putin and his gang. Brezhnev and Andropov and the rest of them, or this kind of Politburo Starzi, the old men of the Politburo, um, they were, well, they were not democratically elected politicians. Uh, some of them were bastards, most of them were bastards, of course. But frankly, they were politicians who acted upon the national interests of the Soviet Union, the way those interests were formulated by them. Um, they were not really a mafia out of Mario Pizzo novel. The difference with Put Putin's leadership is somewhat striking. Um, Putin and Sechin and Shoigu and Lavrov and the rest of, the, of, of this group, uh, well, they act upon the national interests of Russia as they see them. The problem is that because these people also happen to own Russia wholesale, and because these people essentially lord it in a much more direct way than the so late Soviet system did, because the Soviet system was a certain let's see, unofficial separation of powers. I mean, for example, the, the KGB was subordinated to the Council of Ministers, not to the party. That was a fallout from Stalin's day. But these people run Russia, own it, and that means that national interest and private interest, personal interest, is completely, completely coincides in their heads. They don't see a difference. And because of that, it's a survivor, it's a regime that survives every day. And that means a completely different quality uh, of decision-making and completely different attitude towards decision-making. So I think that, I don't, I don't think that Putin will go for nuking Ukraine or even exploding a test device somewhere because he knows, and pre, I'm pretty, pretty sure he's been warned already, what are going to be the consequences. Mm -hmm. But do not expect Cold War rationality and rules uh, from that. Uh, I think that this is the most dangerous thing is that you don't know what they're going to do. And mitigating that is of course, a staggering incompetence of the system. And the invasion itself, as we discussed at the beginning, is great proof of that. But it is not the Soviet Union. It's much more unpredictable. And actually, the problem is, I think, unpredictability is seen by Putin as one of the very few tools he really possesses. That's it. It's similar to Stalin as well. Part of the terror lies in not knowing who is yeah. going to be a victim and what's going to happen next. Now, I know it's 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 a, it's a Saturday afternoon and I know you've got things to do. I've well, got well, one if more I may, if I may, if I may, if you may, yes, if I may, I think it was a very, very uh, sharp observation, Jonathan. Mm. Um, the randomness of terror mm. is what made the Bolshevik regime, especially Star, under Stalin, 
different from the Nazi regime. Uh, there's this, I think it's still alive, uh, a Dutch uh, historian uh, by the name of Gerd Mack. And he wrote this very thick volume called In, In Europe, uh, round about the millennium, when such books were very popular. And uh, he was the first Westerner whom I heard, or rather I read his book, and he observed that that was a major difference between uh, Stalin, Soviet Union, uh, let's say Moscow, 1937, and Berlin, 1937. In Hitler's Germany, if you were not a Jew, a Freemason, a communist, uh, a Sintian Roma, um, a Catholic activist, and you didn't listen to the BBC German says broadcasts full blast in your flat, you could have counted on being seven, by no means guaranteed, but the calculation was reasonable. In Stalin's Russia, you couldn't. You could have been a nobleman, like some of my relatives, and survive. And you could have been an old party member or just a worker and be put to the wall. And that creates a situation in which, uh, which has a very long lasting impact mm. on the national psyche. And this fear is, I mean, I don't want to sound like some kind of crazy guru, but it's nearly genetic. Has certainly but, passed down through generations, uh, even yes, if it's not explicit. Yes, yes, yes. My, my mother, my mother, who yes. saw her father arrested in front of her eyes during my grandmother's birth, she had her this fear until the very end. And by the way, she hated Putin from day one. And once I remember coming back home, and she was quite weak when she lived with us uh, a few months before her death, and. Um, I came back late from, I've got some kind of party. And um, I see that uh, a door to her, to her room is ajar and she, she's listening to radio. To Echo Moskvi, And uh, I come in and I say, Mama, you should have gone to sleep. She said, no, until you're home, I'm not going to go to sleep. I said, look, I am whatever I was at the time, 40 plus, I'm married, I have children, I'm responsible, I'm not an alcoholic, I'm not a drug addict. Uh, I, even if I drink something, you know, I'm not going to grab a, grab a cab and go back safely. Um, you know I'm a reasonable man. And you know that it's, it's a weight on me to know that you're sitting there sleepless waiting for me. Said, I know, and I'm very sorry about it. But you know what? I'm only calm when you are this side of the door or that side of the border. And that was to me, and still is, a definition of what's wrong with the Soviet legacy. Absolutely. That 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 terror doesn't quite go away. I, I had a very different, but I had a similar raging argument with my father mm -hmm. about the role of Finland in the Second World War. And I had a certain sympathy for um, the Finns siding with uh, the Nazis to preserve their independence. Now, my grandmother fled uh, Austria in 1938, mm -hmm. and so my father didn't really see the point there. But my mm -hmm. point was that stuck between two tyrannies, which are threatening to wipe you out, 
One is an industrialized tyranny, uh, which, as you said, doesn't, uh, you know, it's it's predictable in its tyranny. The other is an agrarian tyranny uh, that harks back to something like, you know, the pharaohs of Egypt. It's something mm -hmm. that is so alien to you, mm -hmm. which you can side with. Well, for the Finns, you go with the industrial one, the one that you see as a higher form of development, less capricious. Certainly. And, you know, I, I uh, um, in the last, well, probably 10 years of his life, um, I was very friendly with the late uh, King Michael of Romania and Queen Anne. Um, they took a liking to me and we conversed very frequently. And um, learning about Romania during the wars, which was also you know, pretty anti-Semitic, you know, it, was, it wasn't a nice regime. And the king was a figurehead um, until in 1944, he overthrew Antonescu, the, the, the real ruler of Romania. And I think that it came across very clearly when he talked about it, that uh, the, the unpredictable barbarism of Bolshevism um, was definitely uh, produced a bigger fear than uh, this kind of orderly, rational, seemingly rational. It was as no irrational, but the image was much more rational. Uh, Hitler tyranny. Uh, and yes, and that's why we talk about it, you know, all this kind of regime in Central Europe, uh, Horthy and, and, and whatever, the Senation regime in Poland, Pelsudski, they all, their main enemy was always Bolshevism because they were completely shocked by it. And today, it's, I mean, I'm not, I'm not equating, uh, I'm not saying that Hitler was any way better. What I want to say is that that was a historical factor at the time, actually, in the Baltic states too, where the communists were considered to be the main, the main, the main problem internally, uh, and not not for nothing. The Comintern existed; uh, they spread their ideas, their terror, their money uh, across the world. So I think that yes, it is uh, a story that I think to some extent still is not completely told. Mm. And the behavior is perhaps less to do with communism, more to do with, goodness, you know, the Mongol horde and deep, deep historic uh, behaviors that go back to a previous era of our history of uh, yes. you know, migratory it's, 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 Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, tribes. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's this eternal Russian question. Yeah. Where did it all go wrong? And many people go back to the Mongol invasion mm -hmm. because before that, that looked a bit like a kind of more or less normal uh, medieval state of affairs uh, or oh, looked with as, pride as, like doing as, 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 as in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania something like that yeah or, um, or look to it as a model for future development yeah, as Dugin and Gumilov do unfortunately which yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. has been quoting yeah um, my very last question because I know uh, you need to have some lunch <laughs> and it's late on a Saturday um You've generously given up your time. But the last question here really is, you've talked about Tara, you've talked about the regimes. Um, but we also see, you know, uh, we also see Lukashenko um, and we see Yanukovych and we see Iran. We see places where you equally have a kind of Siloviki class. So you have terror and you have barbarism and you have all the stuff we've been talking about. But the reaction of peoples is different. You know, in Belarus, there was a lot more resistance. Ultimately, it was unsuccessful. Um, in Iran, we're seeing extraordinary spirited resistance. Um, and in Ukraine, actually successfully 
resisting attempt to turn back the clock and create a, a new kleptoc kleptocracy. Um, and I, the question, because I know you've been asked a million times in Western media, why don't Russians rebel? And I think that's quite a trite, ignorant question. But I think there's something about the sort of fight or flight that goes deeper. And in Russia, you see the reaction to tyranny as being, uh, as, as many of your acquaintances and people I know as well, just getting out of the country. And you can understand it on an individual level or even the protection of your families. But to me, it also portrays a sense that they don't feel they have any ownership of the country they live in, any ownership of the system. Uh, whereas people are willing to risk their lives in Ukraine and Iran, despite terror, because perhaps they still feel they own a part of its future. Yes, I think so. I think you're right. Uh, and I think that um, Russian society is, and we mentioned it, is very individualistic and not individualistic in this, you know, libertarian Ayn Rand sense of the word. Uh, it's individualistic. It's individualistic in a very weak sense of the word. It's 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 classless, atomized, of, of, of atomized, weak individuals that uh, are always only for themselves. And frankly, I'm being part of this nation. Also, like that, I, I decided to not to fight, but I decided on a flight. Mm. Yes, I do produce words that work against Putin, and, but I know I didn't go to jail. Oh, but I, you left uh, at a critical period. Yes, and I made left. a moral judgment. That, to an extent, yes, is better I, yes, than just fleeing. Maybe, you know. maybe, maybe, but I think that um, also, well, comparisons with Iran are not uh, completely justified mm. because uh, Iranians have a much stronger sense of nationhood. It's a, 2,500 uh, years old statehood. Mm. Uh, also, it's a much younger country. Mm. Uh, this kind of uh, uh, population growth and uh, ended in Iran, as far as I know, but there's still enough young young people for for, for decades. Yes. Uh, and young countries are ignited much, much better because there are more people that feel that the, there is no future. Mm. Russia is an old country with uh, uh, very bad demographics. And... Um, that has its role too. Also, it's an imperial mindset, which is, and it's a different imperial mindset from the British one, for example. Uh, Britain was, an, France also, was an overseas empire. So yes, it was bad to lose Zanzibar, but in the end you could sail from it and forget that it ever existed. You can't forget about the existence of Kazakhstan or Ukraine. They're still there, right across the border. And I think that this adds to this feeling that the empire is everything. And then uh, it's propaganda. It's, it's part of it. It's not the whole of the problem, but it's propaganda too. Um, and also, I think it's this the main problem for me. I don't know whether you agree with someone who speaks Russian and have been to Russia. In the end, all this, all this history led to a nation of people that are completely devoid of self-respect. And once you do not respect yourself, I don't mean admire, respect, you don't respect others. And that Absolutely. creates a situation in which it's very easy to manipulate you. And it's very easy to force you to do completely immoral things. And my simple answer uh, when people ask, how can Russians do these things to Ukrainians, is that 
easily because they do it to each other and have yeah. done. It's a very violent society. It has. And I, I kind of also get a sense, having met, I know that generation has completely died out, but having met people who were the uh, children of emigres during the revolution, I, and, and obviously through through reading, uh, I started reading diaries of people at the time, which I found much more interesting in some ways than 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 you know, analytical history, yeah. because it gives you a sense that that actually uh, Russia was a different place. It had different dynamics. Uh, it had people who were prepared to resist. It had a sense of, yeah. of classes, um, and it had a much more politically active um, or evolving social sphere in say 1912 uh, than it does now. And I think that's- I, I agree, I agree, I agree. I think that uh, also to some extent the czarist regime was much more lenient. Yes. If you, for example, I look at some of the, 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 the files of some of my relatives that were in czarist jails for mm. uh, say pro-Polish propaganda or some for social democratic propaganda and or some for social democratic Polish propaganda too. Mm. Uh, and I mean, the, it doesn't compare. Yeah, no. I mean, I believe the figure. And, and... TVD, you know, yeah. and one, one important thing is that you mentioned it. Yes, Russia was very, very, very active politically, uh, especially since 1905, since the first revolution. Yes. And the, 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 the Tsar's manifesto, 17th of October, 1905, which essentially ushered, ushered in the era of not exactly constitutional monarchy, but preparation for constitutional monarchy. If it wasn't for the catastrophe of the Great War, mm. then I think maybe it would have evolved into mm. something else. I can agree, yeah. Maybe. I mean, Nicholas II wasn't a very talented ruler, but maybe if it wasn't for the war and for this jingoism, this idea that, oh, we're going to, you know, rip them apart, yeah. um, could have been a different Russia. But you know. Very much so. I think it's that sense of loss and a potential history that could have been that is actually also underpinning and driving the extreme nationalism we see. So it's a sort of, it's a toxic narrative, very much like, uh, you know, the Weimar narrative of of, of loss yes. and betrayal. And then that's playing out uh, at the same time. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Although, you never, one of the Russian opposition activists now in exile, an intellectual, um, a few weeks ago on Facebook, he wrote, look, we're all talking about uh, this being a 19, whatever, 39 or 1941, 1940 moment, revanche. Well, like peril, creating perils between Putin and Hitler. And he asked this man, he, he's a professor in Prague, he said, and what if Putin is actually Kaiser Wilhelm and the real Weimar? And the real Hitler. Still to come. Still way off. That's, I mean, of course history doesn't repeat itself. No, it. But that's an interesting proposition. I don't think it's true, frankly. I don't think Russia will sustain itself. But, you know, you can always theorize. And, and it, it points towards an inherent unpredictability and the fact that things could get even worse than they currently are, which is a... I guess a realistic place to to end on. Um, but I really appreciate speaking today. It's been absolutely fantastic, very, very stimulating, and hopefully uh, perhaps get the chance to speak again as events are rapidly unfolding. 
Thank you very much, Jonathan. I enjoyed your insights because it was very much um, speaking to a mind that that is very much piercing and penetrating Russian reality. Like very few Western minds I know, and believe me, I know quite a few. <laughs> so thanks a million for having me, and uh, I wish you success. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you so much. Thank you.